Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. In the early 1980s, U.S. foreign policy about engaging with communism abroad changed in a subtle but important way. In his 1985 State of the Union speech, Ronald Reagan said the following, quote, We must stand by all our democratic allies, and we must not break faith with those who are risking their lives on every continent, from Afghanistan to Nicaragua, to defy Soviet-supported aggression and secure rights which have been ours from birth. Unquote. That policy of support for anti-communist fighters, wherever they may be, from Central Asia to Central America, came to be known as the Reagan Doctrine. Even though he articulated it explicitly in 1985, Ronald Reagan's administration was very much enacting it from his first days in office. And the Reagan Doctrine was something of a break from earlier U.S. attempts to engage with communism on the world stage. Prior to the 1980s, the U.S. had a policy of containment, so the United States would not allow new communist states to crop up. This is what the Korean War was about, and the Vietnam War was about. In both of those instances, the United States was indeed intervening in other countries' civil wars, but the U.S. was doing so as an ally of other states, South Korea or South Vietnam. And it was attempting to prevent the creation of new communist states, like North Korea, or eventually just all of Vietnam. Now, this is subtly different from, but importantly different from, intervention within a state and arming a rebellion. We think about the Korean War and the Vietnam War when we think about U.S. intervention in the Cold War. And we think about the U.S. being fairly eager to intervene in and meddle with other countries' wars and internal affairs. However, there were some pretty notable instances when anti-communist insurgencies cropped up behind the Iron Curtain and the U.S. did nothing. From 1944 to 1946, Poland had robust anti-communist insurgencies. Likewise, in 1968, there was the famous Prague Spring. And in both of those instances, the United States allowed the Soviet Union or its satellite actors to neutralize the anti-communist rebellion. The Reagan administration would take a more bellicose position. Now, the U.S. would act differently. The United States wouldn't just ally itself with governments who are fighting communist rebels or another rival communist government. No, now the U.S. would have a stated policy of actively supporting non-state rebels. The U.S. would not merely try to keep the Eastern Bloc behind an Iron Curtain. It would try to draw that curtain back. And, inside the Reagan administration, this was seen as a fairly easy matter. This is from an anonymous U.S. diplomat active in the 1980s. They say, quote, 
The contras are strictly an instrument of pressure. Some people around here, and in Washington, really thought, and still do, I guess, that they could incite an insurrection and overthrow the Sandinistas. I always thought that was a load of crap. But in any event, the theory was that we couldn't lose. If they took Managua, wonderful. If not, the idea was that the Sandinistas would react one of two ways. Either they'd liberalize and stop exporting revolution, which is fine and dandy. Or they'd tighten up, alienate their own people, their international support, and their backers in the United States, in the long run making themselves much more vulnerable. In a way, that one was even better, or so the idea went, unquote. So, support the Contras, these rebels who don't have any sort of governmental legitimacy going on, and either they overthrow a communist government, great, or they put so much pressure on this government that they can't export revolution to nearby Honduras, or that government becomes more and more unstable. Win, 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 or so the theory goes. By 1982, American support for the Contras was all over the news, and suddenly the United States was intervening in another country's civil war, backing a right-wing faction fighting a communist government. Meanwhile, the Sandinistas continued to receive aid from the Soviet Union and Cuba. The war in Nicaragua was escalating as weapons and support from the world's superpowers flowed into Central America. Now at this point in the 1980s, Vietnam and the associated American campaign in nearby Cambodia were still very much in the public's mind. And this is recent. It's not even a decade out. The fall of Saigon was in 1975. Very big sections of the American public at this point didn't feel too great about the prospect of more ill-fated and ill-fought American intervention abroad. One particularly bad look was that the CIA was taking a direct hand in operations in Nicaragua. This wasn't just arming the Contras, giving them advice, giving them funding, providing logistical support, that kind of thing. The CIA was also mining Nicaraguan harbors itself, and news that an American agency was taking an active hand in, well, helping fight a civil war abroad didn't sit well with a lot of people. And this was looking to be a messy, brutal civil war. Pro-Contra factions in the U.S. tried to portray them as freedom fighters, as akin to America's founding fathers, and a lot of pro-Contra discourse focused on the conflict between the Sandinista government and Nicaragua's indigenous population. Later in the 1980s, there was a documentary called Nicaragua Was Our Home, and that portrayed resistance to the FSLN as a project of brave native Nicaraguans resisting communism. Now, the conflict between the Sandinistas and the indigenous Nicaraguan population was very real. In fact, that conflict is still kind of a going concern, but portraying this simply as a conflict between an indigenous people and the communist regime that does not understand or respect their way of life very much mischaracterizes it. Recall that many of the Contras were members of the old Somozan regime's National Guard, 
And other Contras or Contra supporters were people who had benefited from that fairly venal and corrupt dictatorship. Remember, it was a dictatorship that literally threw political dissidents into volcanoes. And the Contras fought dirty. They fought like the National Guard of a dictatorship that threw people into a volcano. They targeted medical facilities. They targeted agricultural infrastructure. They targeted foreign aid workers and non-combatants. They didn't play by the rules of war. When they took prisoners, they tortured them. They decapitated them or mutilated or castrated them. And they didn't even have to be Sandinista fighters. They also did this with anyone suspected of supporting the FSLN. More than a few experts have characterized their methods of terrorism, and I think that characterization is pretty fair. When you're not merely killing people, but killing people in particularly brutal ways to sow fear in others and cow the population into not resisting you, yeah, I think it is fair to call that terrorism. Many folks in the United States didn't want to be associated with a conflict like that, notably Congressman Edward Boland from Massachusetts. He realized that the most effective thing that Congress could do to combat U.S. intervention in Nicaragua was control the purse strings. Boland and his allies managed to pass an amendment that prohibited the use of funds for the purpose of overthrowing the government of Nicaragua or spreading war between Nicaragua in neighboring Honduras. However, there was a loophole. See, the first Boland Amendment prohibited the U.S. from using funds to overthrow the Nicaraguan government. But that's not what was happening. The U.S. had merely been supporting the Contras. And it was the Contras who just happened to be trying to overthrow the Nicaraguan government. And it was the Contras who just happened to be trying to overthrow the Nicaraguan government. Now, if you're groaning because of the hair-splittingness of this reasoning, I can't blame you. But subtle distinctions can be important. The first Boland Amendment didn't stop the Reagan administration, and during 1983 and 1984, the CIA helped direct and train Contra military actions in Nicaragua despite that amendment including the aforementioned mining of Nicaraguan harbors. And I want to stop for a moment and emphasize that members of Congress from both parties were angry about this. Edward Boland, who I mentioned already, was a Democrat, but another big congressional opponent of CIA activity in Nicaragua was Barry Goldwater. Yes, that Barry Goldwater, the senator from Arizona, one of the most important figures in the modern conservative movement, was incensed that the executive branch was acting without consulting his committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee. By law, the executive branch should have checked in with him before doing anything like, say, mining harbors. They didn't. So suddenly, people on both sides of the aisle are pretty upset with how the United States is conducting itself in Central America, and Congress passed a second Boland Amendment in 1984. It read, quote, 
No appropriations or funds made available pursuant to this authorized bill to the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, or any other agency or entity of the United States involved in intelligence activities may be obligated or expended for the purpose or which would have the effect of supporting, directly or indirectly, military or paramilitary operations in Nicaragua by any nation, group, organization, movement, or individual, unquote. That right there was Congress putting its foot down. By the way, you might be wondering how these amendments even managed to pass. Why didn't they get filibustered or vetoed? Why did the Reagan administration even stand for this? Weren't they organized enough to prevent something like this from happening at all? Well, both of these amendments were appended to routine appropriations bills, and the 1980s were a different political time. Back then, declining to pass routine appropriations bills was just unthinkable. I mean, what are you going to do? Have a government shutdown? That would be that would be crazy. They would never do that. <sighs> History is wild, man. But anyway, by now it's 1984, and the Reagan Doctrine is just a year away from being fully articulated, though it's still very much in effect. The administration has a goal of support and intervention of anti-communism abroad, but Congress denied them the necessary funds to do that in Nicaragua. So the Reagan administration was in a bind. They were unable to legally and directly supply the Contras with arms or other assistance. They had two things they could do if they wanted to carry out the foreign policy that Ronald Reagan would eventually become known for. Now, the first way they could support the Contras was through private donations and third-party countries. And a conservative political consultant named Carl R. Chanel worked with a Marine lieutenant colonel named Oliver North, we'll learn all about him next episode, to raise money for the Contras' anti-Sandinista efforts. Chanel's organization, the National Endowment for the Preservation of Liberty, was able to raise over $2.7 to buy arms and other supplies for the Contras. So they did indeed take that route. They did try to shake down rich people and get a bunch of funding for anti-communist rebels in Nicaragua. But when it comes to wars, $2.7 million is really just a drop in a bucket you could raise far, far more money from foreign governments. When it came to third-party countries, the administration's go-to choice was Israel. The thinking was that they could maybe convince Israel to use some of the foreign aid it got from the U.S. and divert that American money to the Contras. But they eventually dismissed that idea. They were, however, able to secure about $32 million from Saudi Arabia, and $1 million from Taiwan. But still, at this point, that's just about... But still, at this point, that's just shy of $36 million. That's not nothing, but it's not a lot. Sure, you could ask rich people and other governments for money, but, you know, how else could you fund this thing? How indeed? Next episode, Iran-Contra really gets going, with some skullduggery and shenanigans. As always, this podcast is funded without skullduggery and shenanigans. It's funded by you, giving the podcast money every month, which is entirely necessary for this thing to keep going. Thank you to all of you who are monthly supporters. Again, to become a monthly supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. 
Also, go on Apple Podcasts and give us ratings and reviews. Give us stars and write words, and that helps other people discover the show. We're on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Go there and click the like button. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye. Andre has a red flag. Cheyenne Shings is blue. They all have hills to fly them on, except for Lin Tayu. Dressing up in costumes, playing silly games, hiding out in treetops, shouting out rude names. Look out.